from the city that brought you some of the world's most important discoveries and the Sinclair C5. This is the Cambridge Science Festival podcast. This is the first episode of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast and I'm Azik Thiri from The Naked Scientists. In the next few days, we'll bring you all the highlights and the hottest events from the Cambridge Science Festival. And we'll also send out our own naked scientists to quiz the celebrities. And of course, there'll be plenty of hands-on stuff for you to try at home. But for this episode, do you want a robot at home? Not really. Computers go wrong, so I imagine they would as well. Yeah, it would be a bonus, really. It would be just like having your mum at home like 24-7. And can we really make life more pleasant for people near Heathrow? Also, we'll catch up with our own Sabina Miknovich on her night out with the stars. We're looking at the Orion Nebula tonight, which is uh, one of the attractive features of the sky. But first, to kick us off with, who best to speak to than Nicola Buckley, the festival organiser? Her efforts for the past 12 months have made this all happen. Here's our own Chris Smith talking to Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Now, what's the Cambridge Science Festival sort of aiming to achieve? Why are you doing this? It's all part of National Science and Engineering Week and we're aiming to provide something for everybody, all ages. We're really interested in getting young people studying science and technology, but we're after their parents as well. We really want to get everybody involved in what's going on at the university and beyond. So how many people will turn up to something like this? We're expecting 20,000 visitors. All in one day? No, over two weeks. We'll be seeing something like 10,000 visitors next Saturday, 17th of March in Cambridge, when we're opening about 40 different events all in the centre of town. So it's a very action-packed day, I have to say. Is it just aimed at science geeks like me, or would the average member of the public really appreciate it? Well, we were in the uh, Grafton Centre yesterday, the shopping centre in Cambridge, uh, with a five-foot-high robot handing out programmes. And I tell you, we got rid of about 800 programmes because people are seriously keen. They're going, what is going on? And uh, we sell it, well, you know, come meet some robots, come and get some hands-on science with Crash Bang Squelch, the chaos group. Um, And people are are kind of intrigued and they think, yeah, I want to be part of that. Why do you think we need this kind of event? Because we never used to have science festivals and all that kind of thing. So why is it so important now? Well, I think it's good. You you have literary festivals, you have comedy festivals, and I think science deserve their own festivals as well. I think it's a showcase for science events that go on the rest of the year as well. In fact, there are many museums where you can get this kind of learning uh, out of school throughout the rest of the year. But I think everybody needs a highlight. They need some way of finding out what some of the great things are that you can access in your own town, uh, ways to enhance your learning that you might get in school with some of these uh, facilities that might be available through a university or through a museum. So come on then, whet our appetite. What are some of the really fun and squelchy fun things we're going to see. You mentioned Crash Bang Squelch. That sounds intriguing. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, the students at Cambridge Hands-On Science, they'll be doing 50 fantastic hands-on experiments, extracting DNA from kiwi fruit, building bridges. Um, we've got lots of creepy crawlies for you to meet. We've also got a Bottle Your Own Jeans event, which is very popular, where the kids are taking cheek swabs and uh, going away half an hour later with their own DNA and a necklace. You make your own DNA? Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> OK, and so where does this all kick off and and when? It all kicks off at uh, 10 o'clock on Saturday, 17th of March, on the Downing site and the new museum site at the University of Cambridge. If you visit our website at cambridgescience.org, all the details are there. And how much is it going to cost people? It's absolutely free. Almost the entire festival is entirely free. There are a couple of theatre performances that are charged for, but this is a fantastic free day out for all ages. 
Nikki, thanks very much. So I can thoroughly recommend it. We're going to be there on the on the launch day on Saturday. That's Saturday coming up. So if you can make it to Cambridge and come and see us, we'll be there. The Naked Scientists promoting the Cambridge Science Festival. Thanks, Nikki. The Naked Scientists Crazy Science Facts number two. Did you know the average person in England can expect to live for 2.5 billion seconds? That's about 78 years. Now, apart from all the wonderful events that are happening all over the weekend, there are plenty of things for you to do during the week. One of these things is the school masterclasses, where a scientist takes a group of school children and talks to them about the fascinating science they do at work. So we sent our own Ben Vassler to one of these events to find out if teenagers like the idea of having a robot at home. Could this be the sound of the future? It may sound like a skateboard, but this is actually the sound of simple robots which can find their way around objects. In the Walking with Robots workshop, Dr Claire Rocks encourages school groups to get up close and personal with the inner workings of robots. We've partnered up with uh, experts in public engagement with science, experts in public engagement with robotics, experts in the media, to go out and engage people with the reality of current robotics research, so to sort of move away from robots of the films or robots that you see in science fiction, and actually let people know a bit more about what's happening in current robotics research. But are people really comfortable with robots? Would they allow a robot to cook for them or clean for them? Not really. Computers go wrong, so I imagine they would as well. I'd try it out, but I probably would throw it out after a while because I'd probably have broken it. Looking at them now, no. I don't think so. I, I, I think it's it's not necessary. I don't think it's, there's any point in it, really. I probably wouldn't because that would be quite scary. <laughs> I think if it got too advanced, it would ruin traditions as well. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, yeah, yeah. probably. I'd have it clean my house. Just, but just my room, it. maybe. Yeah, yeah. there'll be like a housemaid thing, just a little square. And everyone like, like, a, like, a, like a robotic friend kind of thing. Yeah, but I'd feel a bit lazy, to be honest. Yeah, it would be a bonus, really. It would just like having your mum at home like 24-7. I don't think it would be programmed really to rob you. And how comfortable would Dr Rocks be with a robotic maid? Very comfortable. <laughs> so you'd be happy to have a domestic robot? Then? Yeah, quite happy, but I, I, I'm in a privileged position in that I'm quite aware of a lot of the research that's going on in the UK, and so I don't have any misconceptions that might lead me to think that they're about to take over or that they're going to cause me any harm. And that's one of the messages that I think making people more aware of the current reality of robotics is one of the ways of sort of making people a bit more comfortable with them. So what do people actually think the current reality of robots is? What they use for in emergencies and like collapsed buildings. Yeah, yeah, it's all to do with saving time, really, at the minute, isn't yeah. it? Um, just making things easier. They can do stuff better than this, so. Yeah, they do it quicker. The robots built during this workshop are capable of changing direction when they meet an obstacle. But how does this relate to the wider world of robots? To let the robot know where it's going, really. Detect what's in front of it, so it prevents it from damaging itself really badly and destroying itself. I think it could be just more for entertainment-wise than actual future-wise, because I couldn't really think of anything what it could be used in the future. 
If you test it with small ones, then if you use it with larger robots, like if you send them out into somewhere which is unsafe for humans, and they'll bump into something and then they'll back away from it and go another way, which means they find their way around obstacles, which can be used in larger real-life situations. Part of the problem is we were doing very, very simple robots here. I mean, it's one way of programming a robot that you can build up from very, very simple behaviours to get a more complicated behaviour out that emerges, so an emergent behaviour at the end. So it might be very, very difficult for people to make that link between the very simple robots that they've seen today and very complicated conscious robots. So what is the future for robotics? Well, I, I think that that's something that we can decide and make. I'm undecided about whether we will have conscious robots, and, and I think that that's a split within the research community as well, whether we will one day have very conscious robots or whether they'll just be intelligent or very, very intelligent and very capable robots. How robots integrate with us is a field of research in itself, and I think we can make some decisions now. It's early enough that we can decide how we want it to, to happen. We are now with robots where we were 30 years ago with PCs, so I think we will get lots and lots of lots more robots making an appearance, whether that's cleaning your house or uh, building your car. Claire Rocks talking to our own Ben Valsler. Now, if you've lived near an airport, you know only too well that aircraft are really noisy. You might, however, be pleased to know that a bunch of scientists here at Cambridge are working on a way of making them very much quieter, a bit like this. Dr. Tom Hines is a senior lecturer in aerodynamics here at the engineering department, and he works on the Silent Aircraft Initiative. So we sent our own Dr. Chris Smith to find out more. One of the great constraints that you have on air travel at the moment is the amount of noise that it makes. It limits where you can operate aircraft, what times you can operate them, and it causes a tremendous amount of distress to everybody who lives near an airport. It does have health impacts. People near Heathrow have higher blood pressure than people uh, elsewhere in the country. I believe so, yes, that's true. And if you look at aeroplanes, what's actually making all the sound? I mean, it's easy to say well, it's the engine, but, but what actually makes the noise that we hear when an aeroplane is taking off when it's landing? Well, it's not true that it's always the engine. If you take takeoff, it's the engine. And the noise sources there are of two types. There's the tremendous amount of power in the jet that comes out of the back, which drives the aircraft forward. And it's the mixing of that flow with the surrounding atmosphere, which is a noisy process. A second major source is just simply the blades that are inside an aero engine, the rotors and the stators, which look a little bit like wings as they pass each other they issue rather nasty, irritating tones. But you can't do without engines on aeroplanes unless you're going to fly no. around in gliders, so can we get round this? Well, within the Silent Aircraft Initiative, what we tried to do is we tried to tackle the jet noise by having a low-velocity jet. In order to get the thrust, this means you need a big jet. So in other words, the air's flowing slower, but you're moving more of it at once? That's correct. So you're getting the same amount of propulsion, but that's right. hopefully less noise? Hopefully less noise. So that's the engine. Is there anything else you can do to, to cut the noise down? We tried to use the airframe to actually reflect the noise. The aircraft has a very big surface area, which enables us to actually do a lot of reflection of the sound upwards. It also enables us to put big engines into it. It's got a bigger volume available for sighting the engine. Wings. So rather than having to put the engine hanging off the underside or something, you can actually embed it as, as, a, as part of the body of the aeroplane? That's correct. And that reduces the drag, so this is quite an efficient thing to do. 
it gives you a lot of room for sound absorbent materials. So how would you quieten down an engine then? What, what can you put into it to make it so that it makes less noise? You can move the blades far apart so that the air that one has used doesn't interact as strongly with the air downstream. But it is really about sound absorbent material and then reflecting that noise upwards. Now you mentioned that it's going to be more economical, but how many miles to the gallon does your average aeroplane do then? It depends whether you talk short haul or long haul. Short haul aircraft is like driving a a single passenger in a small light truck. It would be the order of 15 miles to the gallon if you go short haul. Long haul, they become quite efficient. And the long haul aircraft at the moment would be like two passengers in a Toyota Prius. That's actually better than I anticipated because I thought air travel, given the bad press it's got, people were saying it's the one thing that's, that's the worst thing we can do for the environment, I was expecting you were going to say it, it was a horrendously fuel-expensive way of moving things around. Well, driving one person in a light pickup truck is a... But a Prius is all right, isn't it? A Prius is very good, yes. yes. But you don't drive a Prius 10,000 miles in an afternoon. Well, not, not unless you're no. going pretty fast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how many miles to the gallon will, will your design do? It's about 25% better than something like a 777. This year's Cambridge Science Festival has science art, science theatre and even science comedy. Dr Harry Witchell is a physiologist by day, Dr Graham Jones a chemist and Dr Mark Looney a patent official. But by night they transform into a scientific musical cabaret show, the science of sex, drugs and rock and roll. From the physics of the electric guitar to stoned neuroscience, they'll be dragging the audience down the slippery slope of the rock star lifestyle to hilarious discoveries about everyone's three favourite vices. Catch them at the ADC Theatre in Cambridge on 18th of March at 7.45. Now, the Science Festival isn't all about lectures and talks. There are plenty of activities to take part in, as our own naked scientist, Sabina Miknovich, discovers. I'm at Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy, along with 400 other people, all eager to learn new things about our universe and excited to look at the night sky. To start the evening off, Dr Derek Jones gave a lecture called A National Scandal, How We Didn't Discover Neptune. Scandalous behaviour, heavens above. So what was the scandal about? Well, the scandal was that uh, in uh, the 1840s, a young mathematician at Cambridge had predicted that there ought to be a further planet to the solar system and that he could calculate pretty accurately where it should be. But he was just a young man and he couldn't interest the um, older people in the university to look for his supposed planet. At the same time, there was another man called Leverrier in um, Paris who did more or less the same thing, but he actually published his results to the world as he derived them, so they were very much better known. The English did finally get round to searching for the new planet, but in the meantime, Leverrier had written to his colleagues in Berlin who were fortunate to have an up-to-date star chart of that part of the sky. And simply by comparing what they saw through their telescope with what was on that uh, chart, they could immediately see which was the new planet. 
And when this news reached England, everybody played the blame game. The French were uh, a little bit upset because they thought that Adams was making a fraudulent attempt to steal the discovery from Le Verrier, but they were also upset that it hadn't been discovered in Paris, but that Le Verrier had had to write to Berlin to get his results uh, confirmed. And, of course, the Germans, when having discovered the planet, they thought everything was just fine and they weren't worried at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, they'd found it. So um, there are eight planets now. We agree on eight planets. But there used to be nine. Uh, that's correct, yes. So where did... Uh Pluto get sacked? It got sacked at the International Astronomical Union meeting uh, in Prague last summer, where there was a very large and emotional meeting about the definition of a planet. When it was finally put to a formal vote, the eight-planet solution was the one that was adopted. The evening wasn't just about lectures, though. Luckily, there was very little cloud, so we ventured outside for some nocturnal revelations. This is the Thurgood Telescope. It was built in 1864 um, by Cooks of York. And um, it's been here since 1928. It's a traditional refracting telescope, so it has a big glass lens at the top end. And you look through the bottom end here. And what have you got it pointing at at the moment? We're looking at the Orion Nebula tonight, which is... uh, One of the attractive features of the sky, you can actually see it with the naked eye on a very clear night and where there's no light pollution. Well, it's pretty fabulous to learn that even with normal binoculars you can see celestial objects. I think I'll have to go and do some star spotting in my back garden to see what I can find. We're also very lucky tonight because we have access to the university telescopes, so I'm off to have a look at those next. With me, and what I'll do is I'll line up these binoculars and then I'll tell you what you're looking at. Do you see that little fuzzy blob? As a group of stars called the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. Now, have a look at it through the binoculars and tell me whether you think there are just seven stars there. Do you think there are many, many more than seven? I think there are about 20. 20? Well, I think there might even be more than that. I had a lady earlier who was describing these kind of diamonds scattered over the sky. So that's what we call an open cluster of stars and they've all formed from the same cloud of gas and dust and they stay kind of gravitationally bound as a group. I had a look at the Orion Nebula and it was pretty cool. I'm not the only one to be impressed this evening though. The event has attracted people of all ages. I've got a starstruck youngster with me now, so let's hear what she thinks. I'm Gabriella and I'm nine years old. Okay, and where did you come here tonight? Because we were stargazing. And now I just saw you having a look through some binoculars. What could you see? A little cluster. Uh-huh. What did it look like? Um, loads of stars clumped together in a ball. Well, I've had a thrilling evening too. When I look up at the sky at night, I'll be able to recognise a few more constellations. It seems that the stars which have been gazing down upon us through time continue to fascinate people of all ages as we gaze up at them. Thanks, Sabina. Now, if you've missed out on that opportunity for some stargazing, don't worry, because the Institute of Astronomy are running open evenings until the end of March. The details are all on their website at ast.cam.ac.uk. 
50 fantastic hands-on science experiments for all ages. That's how the student group Cambridge Hands-On Science describe their hugely popular crash-bang-squelch event. They have over 100 students demonstrating 50 experiments. And their risk assessments run to more than 270 pages. No one thought about the risk to me as those landed from a great height on my desk this morning. Perhaps next year they need to do another risk assessment for whoever needs to lug around all their health and safety documents. Well, that's it for this episode, but join us again in a couple of days' time when we bring you the best of the fest from the big day on Saturday the 17th of March, where you can also find out what would make a patent official do this. I'm horny! Come again, ladies! Hmm... You'll have to wait until next time to find out what all that is about. But until then, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to Naked Scientist team, Ben Basler, Sabina Miknovich, Mira Sentinlingam and Dave Ansell. This program was produced and presented by me, Azzy Katiri, and the editor was Chris Smith. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.